let's uh, let's look at your question first, okay? And go. I have to go back and forth between screens. Yes, so you can see me and I can see you. That's great. All right. Um, so you say, in, in regards to the human experience, there can be moments that give rise to the experience of emotions and perception of pain, heartache, within letting go, despite the spaciousness and knowing that exists. This knowing allows for more flow and the return to letting things be just as they are with more grace and ease. Is this really letting go or just surrendering to what is? Maybe you could help me. Um, I would tend to use the term letting go as being maybe a little bit more inclusive but as, as surrendering to what is as being an aspect of a more complete or very complete letting go. So letting go, so, so I would see them as the same thing except in terms of, of degree. Uh, is that how you see them? Is that what you're asking here? Um. Yeah, a little bit, I think. Um, there's been some confusion around it for me lately. Um, well, let's clear that because you say or just as a surrendering to what it is. is uh, and I would put them other. Is this just letting go in a gen more general sense or is it truly surrendering to what is? So you tell me your understanding. Well, I've had experiences recently where um, my perspective has been uh, misunderstood mm -hmm. and people have called into question my integrity not because anything that was done wrong mm -hmm. but because they didn't understand um, the things that i was um, knowing mm -hmm. um, so you know i noticed definitely the egoic reaction of um, self-preservation mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and but at the same time as i was watching it play out i knew that there was um no truth in um the whole interaction that was taking place mm -hmm. um so then it um you know as a human experience there were actions to take but as far as um the knowing there was nothing to do mm -hmm. Um, so I was finding it difficult knowing, um, like how to, how to navigate it. it. It was, I letting go of the circumstance. Was I surrendering to what is, was I letting go of the idea that there was even a me existing in that moment? Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just really challenging to navigate the circumstance. Um, and at the same time, you know, there was nothing to navigate. Yeah. But in going forward now, there's there's obviously a me still having the, the experience, mm -hmm. but there's nothing to hold on to or grasp as far as a self is concerned because I kind of saw through what was taking place. There is an experience that is happening. Yeah. And there, it is the identification yep. with experience as, as belonging to some kind of self that uh, 
is the is what gets in the way so to surrender to what is just to accept what it is is both liberating in that uh it it allows that letting go of, of attachment to it and it's also empowering because now uh you can you can respond without that further impediment of the ego attachment and the emotions and so forth that rise together with it and so you you can use the the cognitive capacities of, uh, of the mind that is a part of that experience to their best avail because you are not, uh, they're not struggling to wrestle with emotionally driven self-oriented goals. So, okay, so. And even now what I'm noticing is just this profound state mm -hmm. of emptiness. Um, that I've never felt before. And at first I'm going, gosh, am I depressed? But it didn't feel like a depression. It just felt like um, an opening. And then not, because it was unfamiliar, mm -hmm. having this deep state that I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, let me just point out something to you about, you know, um, there are things that, that cause pain uh, well, physical pain is, uh, uh, if you look at the first noble truth, the Buddha is essentially saying that there is physical pain and elsewhere than the uh, 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 turning of the wheel sutta, he explains that there's physical pain and there is mental pain and that physical pain will never go away, pain, pain of bodily origin. He makes it kind of cut and dry so that mental pain is a suffering we get rid of and physical pain is that comes from the body when you smash your toe or something like that but the brain is as much a part of the body as the toe and as a matter of fact the pain in the toe is experienced in the brain we we are designed to experience certain kinds of pain, the grief at a loss uh, uh, and things like that. And these really are more in the category of, uh, of physical pain due to physical injury or illness or something like that. And our response to them is the same. It's don't generate the second arrow. Let it be there. Just go, go with the flow of what is unfolding mm -hmm. and so yeah so some things now as you go along some of those things like when somebody says something that is uh, well the example that, that you gave and I don't remember your words but so that's triggering something that is also to some degree involving uh, I mean, some parts of your mind still are exercising an ego attachment to that, yep. not contributing to it. And that is something that, that uh, you know, it's, uh, it is, it's an ongoing process. Yes. So that, that'll fall away more and more. But it's through this surrendering to and accepting and then 
doing what's there to be done and doing it from that sort of emotionally liberated state to the degree that that you can let go right that's that's what empowers and liberates you at the same time in those situations okay does that yeah. help all right yeah, yeah look at the rest of your question and see because that was just the beginning currently in these experiences i'm aware of the self nature of perceived experience to move into whatever's arising until it passes yeah that's what we were just talking about when i inquire as to what is stopping me from fully waking up it appears that the reaction created by the perception of the experience serves as a hindrance to waking up well i don't know that you should think of it as a hindrance to waking up as more a, an indication of ah oh, there's parts of my mind that haven't woken up yet okay it's a process mm -hmm. you know and this idea of somehow you reach an end point where you're not as far as you can go as far as i can tell there there is no such thing the ideal totally completely awakened buddha uh i think is is something of a mythology that has developed uh as buddhism has become more and more as, as the buddha dharma became more and more a religion in various cultures but mm -hmm. anyway so uh there's this it's a don't think of it as a, as a something that you arrive at and you're done okay. uh even though that is the emotional reaction that many people have much earlier in the, in the overall path of awakening uh, it, that's a sign of immature awakening to say ah i'm done I, it, it has been done <laughs> the human experience still serving as an anchor for self-existence exactly in order to function in the world that you you know if, if you lost that uh, you you wouldn't be able to function, and uh, you look to me like a pretty high functioning individual. We we wouldn't want to deprive the world of whatever benefit can come from that. Um, I'm aware that it is at times easier to cling to self identification than to acknowledge the magnitude of the emptiness and impermanence that I am. Um, despite no self emotions will continue to arise learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable um, if you could provide any further distinctions on how to work with this i would be most grateful honestly i'm not sure that there is anything to work with rather than just to continue to be fully immersed in the experience of the arising and passing until it runs its course and self-identification returns no more okay so yes at times it's easier to cling to self-identification for exactly that reason that there's still there are still parts of your mind or your mind system to use the terminology from tmi it's parts of your mind system that you know they're they're not fully on board the with these insights they haven't matured to that degree of uh no self and when circumstances activate those parts of your mind system in particular then your experience is going to tend to uh, go in that direction you're going to also find this is something that that i've discovered that 
you know, we, we might look at that as something, uh, what I just described as, as something that, okay, that's counterproductive, that's, that, that's undesirable, so on and so forth. It's not, it's really, it, it, it's really a part of the process and, and treat it as that. It's, ah, this is telling me where, uh, this is telling me that, that these parts of my mind system can, are, they can be more fully awakened than they are. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe they're still at the beginning, who knows. The other side of this is that you come to the place where it becomes much easier. And, and, and of course, everything you learn about the Dharma sort of justifies that this is the best thing to do. Uh, and it's, it's so much easier to just uh, go into that space of, uh, of, of emptiness, of, of just being in, in, the, in the flow of, of, of suchness. Mm-hmm. And that too is a developmental stage. And it's something that uh, I've recently come to appreciate in a very, very powerful way, the importance of that. That the, it is a developmental stage, and the stage that comes after that, you know, preceded by a kind of moving back and forth between the ultimate reality and relative reality. It's where the two become completely integrated, and that represents, well, that represents where you want to go. Uh, beyond the place where it becomes easier just to dwell in, in suchness. Okay, so that you're not moving back and forth, you're, you're actually simultaneously uh, in, in uh, ultimate and relative reality and there's a full integration of those. So this, this, is some, this is some stuff that I'm looking forward to having opportunity to write in more detail and I'd like to do it in the same fashion that I did with the stages of Samatha Vipassana. Now you're talking about to be fully immersed in the experience of the arising and passing away. Now, there's some people who will disagree with this, of course, but in my experience, and if we look at what is said about various uh, of the insights, the insight into arising and passing away is always referred to as the easiest and most accessible, the insight into impermanence. Mm-hmm. It never is it referred to as the most profound, but it contains within it a much more profound realization. Now, the most profound realization that the Buddha ever described was Paticca Samuppada, or dependent arising. He was not referring to the links of dependent arising. That's just an application of this principle. He's talking about the doctrine uh, that he uh, announced and that when this is, that is, when this is not, that is not, when this arises, that arises, when it ceases, that ceases. The, uh, which is ultimately the total causal interconnectedness of everything. 
This is a much more profound insight. You can get there through impermanence mm -hmm. because the source of impermanence is this total causal interconnected of absolutely everything, okay? But the other really profound insight that is also inherent in impermanence and is a major foundation for insight into no self, but you can have these insights into impermanence and no self without the realization of this, is the one that was really brought forth by the Mahayana, which is emptiness. Now, emptiness is dealt with in early Buddhism, and empty, emptiness is dealt with by the Buddha, but for whatever reason, it never received the full attention it deserved until later in the Mahayana schools. Um, so, while, while arising and passing away, leading to impermanence, is a powerful tool, the, the deeper and more profound version of insight is more along the lines of the total causal interconnectedness of everything, the non-separation of anything and everything. Um, that there is that there are no things. Thingness is something we impose on things that on processes that change slowly enough. Um, and the other is the emptiness that no matter what mental constructs we generate, no matter what dhammas arise in consciousness, these are not, they do not have the self nature of being what they purport to represent. So it's that realization. So this this is where you want to go. So in terms of your practice, keep make make that recognition a part of your basis. That that you the the deepest answers that you're looking for are going to be found beyond just the recognition of impermanence, but rather the deeper. Uh, recognitions that, that lie beyond that. Thank you very much. Okay, why don't I deal with your missing question? Okay, thank you. It's the, the practical questions, if I can remember. Okay, I believe I'm in stage seven. I've had every type of PT that you've written about and more, so I'm one of the lucky ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's just one that occurs to me, and... Um, it's really intense, and I just kind of wanted reassurance that it's normal. I think that's basically what uh, I, I feel as if my head, most of the PT happens to me in the head, and of course I've had the swaying, I've had vibrating, all that stuff, whatever. But I, it feels sometimes as if my head were dull and somebody were needing it. Mm -hmm. I have that sensation often, and sometimes it's very intense. Once I can break through it and fully concentrate on the breath, then I almost immediately go into first John, I've been second John, a third John, then the, the up and down of that. But it's just really, and I just sometimes wonder, it almost scares me some, it doesn't hurt. It hasn't affected me in any way, apart from when I'm doing the meditation. Mm -hmm. um, I meditate for about an hour and a half in the morning and close to two hours in the evening every day. And I just wanted to know one, if that is normal that that happens, it's kind of a pulsating, mm -hmm. this thing happening. And um, I'll ask you all three. They're all practical questions, so I'm sure you'll be able to answer them quite. Or do you want right. to go one at a time? Well, first of all, that, that 
is normal. It's okay. Not uncommon for PT to manifest, uh, especially strongly in the head, feelings of pressure, feelings like something you know, moving back. Very common. As a matter of fact, you'll find this description. I, I've come across it. Uh, I don't know, at least at least a half a dozen times. Completely different Tibetan teachers talking about the feeling of. Yeah. yeah, that has actually ceased in the last couple of weeks. But this kneading kind of wavy, this, okay, so it's normal, fine. I kind of thought it was, but I wanted a little bit of reassurance because... It, it's PT can manifest in a huge variety of ways. I, 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 I would almost say almost any way, but I, I, I don't know. It's just... Uh, I, I, I'm amazed by the variety of ways that it manifests. And I sort of revert back to experiences with psychedelic drugs and things like that, which taught me that your mind can generate almost any, anything. Of course. In yeah. order to try to, any sensory and perceptual experience in order to try to make sense essentially of something that is happening and <laughs> but you know when it happens to your your head the brain it can be a little bit scary and i grew up in the 70s too so i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> you know but at least you knew what it was it's like okay i tried that and this is happening now yeah. you have this natural thing yeah. happening and and um i go with it but i thought i wanted to ask you if it's normal so i can really completely let go and and 100 percent worry about it I've, I've heard it before okay. many times but okay. it's not the kind of normal that every some people never experience anything vaguely like that <laughs> i said almost everything else this was the only one that wasn't in the book that i thought oh gosh i wonder if that's kind of normal in fact in the last couple of weeks since i first wrote my question to you uh, the the pressures has started to cease but, um, and I was contemplating going into stage eight. But now, for the past couple of weeks, either I'm extremely focused and I'm starting to do the following of the breath. And then from one second to the next, my mind is completely someplace. I'm going really to these extremes of mm -hmm. subtle distractions, mind wandering, and then 100% full concentration. And mm -hmm. um, that also, just a question that is that normal? Uh, or what am I? Am I relaxing too much? Am I just uh, I don't know overconfident? Or I I think what that yes that that's not that is something that happens, and most often it's associated with a collapse of awareness. If you if you overemphasize the effortless stability of attention rather than the effortless stability of attention with maximal uh, metacognitive introspective awareness, then that as the introspective awareness diminishes, it can allow some part of your mind system to grab attention and get off. Okay, so how do you keep following the breath so closely? Because that's pretty intense when you're following in, in stage seven, you follow it so intensely. How do you do that? It's like I get to the point when I really start to, I feel like I'm really dissecting it. I mean, how do you do that and then keep all of the awareness going on? That well, I haven't found that balance yet, I don't think. Yes, and, and it's, it's by strengthening both of these faculties together in relationship to each other. 
I mean, how do you juggle running chainsaws and swallow a sword at the same time? Never Not, tried that in my life. <laughs> well, I, haven't, I haven't either. Uh, but, but the point is, you don't get there right away. Okay. <laughs> you work for a while, there. I was really focused, really, really, okay. And then all of a sudden, for the last couple of days, it's been... Um, yeah. Okay. So if there's a second edition of TMI... Uh, I mean, this is this is something that comes up often enough that I realize that I just I have to hammer home much more strongly than I did the first time around the importance of even though what we have intentional control over is attention. Yeah. What really is going to make the difference in the long term, long term, is cultivating this faculty of conscious awareness. awareness. And it's just, it's too easy in the emphasis on stability of attention as I presented it. While I'm always, like the way I just said that, stability of attention along with powerful, if anything, I should probably state it equally opposite, uh, in the opposite way, uh, that powerful metacognitive introspective awareness with the result of Oh. maximal stability of attention because that's okay. where you lose the stability of attention yeah. is you've lost that metacognitive introspective awareness okay one final thing really quickly then i know other people are waiting for their questions is it normal that uh, to have spontaneous meditative um how can i even put them Sometimes my mind, even a few minutes ago, I could feel that my, because it's my meditation time probably, my mind is somehow pulling me into a meditative state spontaneously. And this happens to me quite often during the day mm -hmm. uh, that I just want to sit back. And if, if I close my eyes when that happens to me, I immediately go into a very light first jhana state, almost immediately. Is, mm -hmm. is that common that would happen? It's like a really a calling. Something in my head is saying, sit down, close your eyes, meditate, where it's time to take off or something. That, that will happen with, with people that either uh, jhana becomes very natural, comes very naturally to them and very easily, yeah. or who have uh, done predominantly jhana practice for a long time. I spent a period in my life where I, I did a lot of very intense jhana practice and the mind wants to go into that. Now, the, what might be helpful to recognize is that what we're calling jhana is the same thing that is called a flow state when it's applied to all kinds of other activities. And this is, this is something that everybody experiences. It's obviously yes. built into our brains for a good reason so that we can have that kind of focus on a particular activity and you know the, the flow state serves a purpose um, but it accomplishes that purpose by the best I can describe it is it's as though it just puts up a barrier to all of these other parts of your mind system that might want to get right you know, it just it just shuts them out so think about a flow state, you know, you're out in the world, you're, you're doing something and you're in a flow state. I, I think of like whitewater canoeing. Okay, you're just 
totally present. There's nothing else in your mind. You're just, and nobody's doing it. It's just, you know, everything you've learned is just taking, taking over. Something has shut everything else out. The, uh, the four jhanas actually bear a reasonably good correspondence to the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth stages of samatha. The difference between jhana and samatha in this sense is in jhana you have this limitation that your, your, your brain has put on its blinders so it can't see anything but that. Hmm. Samatha is where you can do that through unification of mind, but you don't need blinders to do it. Yeah, how wonderful. Right? Now, knowing that, see if you can use that when this happens in your daily life to have the benefits of samatha without the blinders of jhana. Jhana. Interesting. I will try that. Thank okay. you very much. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say goodbye because it is my meditation time. So it's 6.30 here. Thank you so much. And well. uh, take care, everybody. I will listen to the recording. Okay. Good. Have a good meditation. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay. Ollie, is, is Ollie here? Um, looks like Ollie's not here. So do, Ollie, we're going to save your question for later and hopefully get to it. Otherwise, I'll do a catch-up and we'll get it done. Mark. <clears throat> good morning, Mark. Good to see you. Hey, good morning, Shilarasa. Nice seeing you as well. <laughs> um, you say, I was wondering if we might speak a little bit about the relationship between sanata and vipassana, and especially how you see these two aspects of practice working together and separately in the later stages to support awakening. For example, when someone is able to maintain a state of unification characterized in stage 10, and to a lesser extent, stages 7, 8, and 9, is there a clear direction about when it would be of benefit to stay in that deeply unified state, or to begin inquiring into the impermanent, unsatisfying, and no-self nature of that unified state? Okay, so um, I'm just going to check with uh, those that are here. Um, is there anyone here that's not familiar with uh, the discussions that I've had, the discoveries that uh, uh, I made with the help of, uh, of Paulinelli, my research assistant, about the meaning of the word vipassana? Okay, well, and for those that have, um, it's worth it's worth reviewing. Now, since I think since the early British translators of probably the Sri Lankan Pali, um, the the word vipassana has been treated as uh, it has been translated as insight, and has been treated as. Uh, meaning uh, the experience of achieving insight. And if you look at the Pali English Dictionary, the PTS Dictionary, uh, pasana means seeing, or see, and the prefix vi, as in vipassana, vi, means there's a whole bunch of different things that it means. Only one of them is in, 
most of them are more like through or into or beyond or so on and so forth. And so I can see it was a simple mistake that was made, but it's one that's persisted to the present day. And it's one that leads to some contradictions, like in the Yuganada Sutra where the Buddha says that someone who has Vipassana but not but not Samatha needs to learn Vipassana. Somebody who has Samatha but not uh, Vipassana needs to learn Vipassana. Well, somebody had Vipassana, and Vipassana meant insight, like the fundamental insights into the nature of reality. Why the hell would they need anything else? <laughs> sure. So what Vipassana is referring to is a particular way of using your attention to see beyond. I, I mean, what, what we usually experience, have sensory input of some kind, okay? And what we usually consciously experience is this whole story that we've developed over similar experiences in the course of our lifetime. We don't really see what's there. We don't even we don't even see the underlying ways that that's constructed. We just see an end product. For example, the breath. You follow the breath, and inherent in there is is the existence of a body, a part of the body called the nose, uh, a substance called air. Uh, the body is solid and the air is a gas and directionality so that there's in and out all of that is implicit in there what are you really experiencing though and this is something that you discover just naturally in the course of meditation is all i'm experiencing is a series of sensations rising and passing away one after another the nose and the air and the in and the out hey that's that's the story my mind has made. Now I'm actually seeing what's there. That's the meaning of vipassana. That's what vipassana means. And that's how insight comes about. Now, you can cultivate this way of using attention without necessarily putting a lot of intentional effort into cultivating stability of attention and powerful awareness. But you may not be putting a lot of consciously intentional effort into cultivating those. You have, you have, they have to be present before the vipassana is going to be able to manifest and give rise to insight. When attention is moving spontaneously, you can't have that, it can't be exercising its vipassana capability. And when awareness is diminished, then the value of that vipassana experience doesn't have a place to land, right? Because your awareness is your understanding of the world. And you want that vipassana to inform your understanding of the world in a way that it hasn't in the past. Uh, the, and this is what causes the light bulb of insight to come, to come on. So in something like the, the bare insight practice of Mahasi, 
you are cultivating stability of attention, even though your teacher will say, I don't worry about concentration, blah, blah, blah. Or, and you're also cultivating awareness, even though it's not explicitly recognized and described as such. But if you just think about the basics of the practice of when something appears, where does it appear? In awareness. But they just say when something appears that draws your attention, then you, first you, uh, you, you note it, later on you just notice it, and, and then you just, you know it. Um, things like that start, you become more, you better and better at that. Well, you're actually developing awareness. You're developing sati. You're, that's, that's the mindfulness component of it that you're developing. When you're training yourself to notice things other than the rise and fall of your abdomen and either put a label on them or just become consciously aware that they are there and, and let go of them. Likewise, everybody who does uh, Mahasi practice experiences mind wandering. And the, so you do develop stability of attention. Not only that, when you begin to experience things like the arising and passing away, that captures your attention. So you don't have to be really skilled. You don't have to be so skilled that you could keep your attention focused on the breath, regardless of, of what, because now what's arising in consciousness is so entrancing that attention doesn't want to go there or go anywhere else anyway. The advantage of developing samatha, where the, the, uh, the uh, awareness, the mindfulness is very well developed, very powerful, where uh, it has taken on the qualities of a metacognitive introspective awareness or a satisampajana, you have the advantage of you have that all of the time. You can invoke it at will when it's not there because you've trained yourself in it. Likewise, with the stability of attention, you can, you can exercise the faculty of vipassana with a stable attention because you have trained your attention to respond to intentions and actually it's responding to guidance by awareness. So remember we talk about this feedback, okay, Vipassana sees more deeply into things. Where does that information land? It lands in awareness and it alters, it, it alters the picture of the world that is arising and that feeds directly back into the uh, the behavior of attention as it investigates things. So in the development of stable attention, we come to a place where stability of attention is effortless. And that's, that's wonderful. That gives us everything that would happen with having a kind of conscious experience which is captivating to attention anyway. But we go beyond that to something else, which is uh, as, as far as I can tell, the real meaning of kanaka or momentary samadhi uh, in, in the Buddhist formulation is that your attention can move from one thing to another 
and it doesn't matter whether it's on that thing for a second or an hour, it's in total penetrating absorption with that thing. So when all three of these faculties are developed intentionally and are available, this then this becomes the mind that is perfectly suited for insight into the way things really are to to be revealed. Uh, see, I have to. You can either uh, respond to me at this point, or I can go back to your question. I'll, that was I'll do. great. That was great. There was lots. There was lots in there, and it was a beautiful um, um, a review of how those systems work together. So. Okay. Now I can deal with the rest of your question. I see what right. it is. Is there a clear direction about when it would be of benefit to stay in that deeply unified state or to begin inquiring into the impermanent, unsatisfying, and no self nature of that unified state? Okay. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not an or. In these advanced stages, um, the, the uh, impermanent, unsatisfying and no self nature of everything, including the unified state itself, begins to be self-evident. Uh, and the, if you didn't have, you've mastered these three skills by the time you reach stage seven. Stage seven is the boundary between the training phase and the adept phase of, of cultivation. So by the time you reach stage seven, you, you, you have mastered th these skills or you're right on the verge of mastering the kanaka samadhi component and, and effortlessness. So if you hadn't done that, and this will happen, people do experience insight and uh, and the uh, first path of awakening prior to stage seven in this practice. But also, if you were doing a bare insight practice where there wasn't the same emphasis on, on sati and samadhi, um, then you need a kind of cueing of the mind as to what to look for. And so that's why there is this practice that, uh, uh, that, that Mahasi makes an important part of the practice is that everything you look at, you look at as impermanent and suffering and selfless. What you're doing is you're taking one set of concepts and you're applying them to something that you're used to conceptualizing differently. So it's acting as, as a trigger. It won't hurt to do that, if you in 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 these uh, uh, higher stages of uh, that are described in TMI, but and there are many practices that lead to that spontaneously occurring without doing this cognitive application process of let me analyze this in terms of impermanence, let me analyze this in terms of so on and so forth. It becomes unnecessary. All of the practices described in seven, eight, nine, and 10 are actually practices which can give rise to insight. And there's many more, I mean, there's, there was no point in trying to include them all. And I was mostly focusing on the samatha aspect. And so I chose 
insight practices that were conducive to refining one's abilities to use the faculties that they had developed. So my experience, my experience um, through some of the qualities that arise in stage seven, eight, and nine mm -hmm. was that a healthy balance of engaging stability and, and uh, using uh, attention in a way to understand what is left of phenomenology that's still distracting the mind. That's what leads to the deeper stages. So through seven, eight, and nine, there really was a sort of natural, a natural healthy mix where you're finding stability and then whatever isn't stable, that's ripe, that's ripe ground to inquire over to see, well, what is actually, what is this all about? And when it dips its hand and shows you, well, actually I'm not about anything, um, it seems to get its volume turned down on it sort of by itself. And then there's another, there seems to be another quality of stability that comes up about. And at first that feels like, oh, this must be the ground. But yes. you realize that you're just snow blind because when you spend a bit of time there, you realize actually it's, it's sort of filled with stuff. It's just much smaller stuff. And I wasn't, I didn't have a powerful enough mind to catch it before. So now you catch it and it seems like you do the same thing again. You find stability and you use inquiry style attention at the periphery or you're using this like you say you you now have the powerful this powerful attention that you can just place bit by bit as a whole as a whole unit yeah. and again in understanding what's left over of phenomenology yes. it gives way it gives way to a deeper a deeper form of stability um my question today particularly comes out of where I'm working now, which seems to be the, the sort of deepest stability I have available. And it seems like I can hang out in that unified state. Mm -hmm. And uh, so discursive mind is pacified, sensory mind is pacified. Um, whatever leftover phenomenology there is of just being a subject without mm -hmm. any particular object, even it's just happening at a peripheral sort of crackling and popping uh, yeah. in in a space and that space is observable and i can hang i can hang out in that space mm -hmm. but if i hang out in that space for a while mm -hmm. it it tips its hand but in a way that the other stages hadn't tipped their hands it tips right. its hands insofar as there is dimensionality here there mm -hmm. is some quality of phenomenon although it's not like it wasn't like the discursive mind or even like uh, sensory phenomenon that has other qualities and I seem to be able to have um, I have the ability in some way to intend to pay attention more to the stability that's there or to actively look for what qualities are left and right. I, I wasn't sure if if like you say to hang out in the stability and then it naturally will evolve it will show me when it's time to sort of inquire over it or yeah. whether or not a amount of stability is a good opportunity to start inquiring. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, there, uh, there has arisen, particularly in the uh, modern, uh, if you know what I mean by modern, the, the colonial era version of uh, Theravadan, this uh, uh, real negative critique of Samatha. And that just hanging out, uh, always, there is a danger. It's not a huge danger. It's not really what 
the teachers in that tradition make it out to be. Uh, but there's a danger in just hanging out and not really using those faculties you have because it's just very, very pleasant, very blissful, very peaceful, all these other kinds of things. Now, it's the reason it's not as dangerous, it, it, it is dangerous because you can waste a lot of your time in that when you could be doing more productive things. But it's not that dangerous in that sooner or later you realize, hey, this isn't this isn't what I've been doing all this practice for, to hang out in this nice place, and then when I get up, it's gone. So uh, that's, where, that's where using these practices, uh, some of which include inquiry, like uh, use this ability, the place to hang out as a still point, and hang out in the still point with the, uh, the realization of the witness, and the inquiry then is who or what is witnessing this or to do the meditation on the mind, which is a Mahamudra practice, basically. And, and uh, it's the same thing. It's you're hanging out in this place. Uh, you've, you've, you've produced a change in the way that attention and awareness interact, which lends a much greater acuity to awareness than it normally has. And then your inquiry is what is the nature of mind? What, what is the nature of objects arising in mind? What is the nature of mind? And so forth. So, uh, and like I say, there's many more practices that are not mentioned uh, in, in TMI where they do this. So rather than just hanging out and enjoy it, and even if you just hang out, the chances of having insight are, 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 are pretty darn good. They happen spontaneously. But there are practices that have been developed over the centuries, which can just get you there that much faster, and in some ways more completely, because uh, because you're you're the practices themselves have been designed have I don't know if you could use it have evolved in order to to maximize their effectiveness. Yeah, and so just just one last thing, um, I say a bit flippantly, just hanging out. But the truth is that every every one of these stable spaces is incredibly healing and unification is so um, powerfully wholesome to the mind. And yeah. so I don't feel like I'm like, just to be clear, I'm not hiding and I'm not just enjoying, but I've learned like um, the time that I spent with powerful pity, sort of bone breaking physical pity and then beautiful, bright, brilliant mind pity. The truth is I, I, I don't think we should rush past that because it has a healing quality in it, doesn't it? And also when that right. healing was done, I could really feel it because my, my pity practices went high for a long time and then they turned naturally into more peaceful practices. And I kind of felt my intuition was that healed whatever needed to be healed while those qualities were available. And then other stability showed up as opportunities for the mind to be made whole. Um, exactly. But, uh, Yes. But you're right. The Mahamudra practice, and this is this is um, when I say inquiring over this space. Um, that's that's what I mean. Also, is to, yeah. there is a stability. Uh, that stability shows itself to have qualities. But the yes. second has qualities. Qualities for who? Who are those qualities for? If they're because at first it feels like well, there's nothing to grab hold of. <laughs> if it has a quality, then the question is what? Who's the quality for? Okay. All right. Wonderful. Thank you. Great question. Great. Thank you. Excellent.
Um, let's see. Nathan. Hi, Nathan. So, uh, okay. Is this correct? One solution to the shadow issue on fourth path, put that in quotes, is developing a practice that replaces the dukkha feedback mechanism, largely absent. <coughs> but it seems not entirely absent on fourth path. With some emotional, subtle energy feedback mechanism in conjunction with psychotherapy. Okay, so what you're after here is is dealing the shadow issue I think that you're referring to, and you correct me if I'm mistaken. The shadow is the, the parts of your mind system that are not particularly awakened and are harboring powerfully conditioned uh, uh, kinds of reactive responses to situations, uh, which can produce exactly the same kind of, quote, shadow problems uh, that they do all the time in, uh, in just your ordinary person on the street. Uh, so that's what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah, just I, in a brief uh, word yeah. to the point yeah. of that process. Okay. Uh, and so, um, in conjunction with psychotherapy, uh, are there some emotional, subtle energy feedback mechanisms? Absolutely there are, and I'll, I'll speak more to that. Let me just look at a little bit more at your question here, where you go from here. What might be the core elements, systems, and techniques that such a solution would, should consist of? And could a comprehensive solution be some kind of practice that viewed intention from a purely cause and effect perspective? And could comprehensive be some kind of uh-huh. In other words, to internalize a sort of cognitive and energy network alert system, which alerted conscious awareness to the subtlest energies and intentions that may be deviating from the Dharma. Some intention recognition systems in which the mind system was primed to recognize when its intention were being deviated from, not because of dukkha or craving being present, but simply because the results of forming an action around such an intention would result in consequences that were knowingly contradictory to its comprehensive and evolving models of the Dharma intentionally developed to serve this intention. Okay, this, I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm going to have to yeah, it was pretty, uh, compact. deconstruct this just a little bit. <laughs> Back to emotional subtle energy feedback mechanisms. Yes. I've, uh, I've, I've, dis I've discovered uh, that both are really important that if we look, if we look beyond uh, the majority of the traditional Buddhist training in, in, in the world, uh, I say Buddhist, I mean in the generic sense of, of all the different traditions that are based to some degree on, on the Buddha Dharma. Um, if we look beyond that, and, and if we look into modern psychology, we find uh, a couple of really powerful things that have been used uh, in other systems and are being used in modern therapy that tend to be neglected in these traditional Buddhist things. Um, 
one is dealing with uh, emotions and particularly dealing with emotions using techniques that uncover emotions that are otherwise not apparent to the uh, you know to in, in normal conscious experience so the body the your emotions originate in a part of your brain that was the uh, evolutionarily at one point what now constitutes the limbic system these were the highest levels in existence of your mind and it was your emotions that controlled your behavior and there's a direct connection between the emotional brain and the body that is so strong that in early psychology there was the belief that emotions were experienced only through body sensation and that the conscious experience of the, the feeling of an emotion was something that was secondarily uh, an interpretation of what was primarily a body sensation. Now, of course, as, as soon as that was looked at closely, that, that would mean that uh, quadriplegics uh, shouldn't experience much in the way of emotion anymore, right? <laughs> or at least they'd be their emotional repertoire would be severely limited by the sensations that they could feel uh, above the above the uh, uh, point of severance of the spinal cord uh, but when when this third level of the triune brain developed you know all of our massive uh, cerebrum and and cortex now the emotional system goes up as well as down and we can, there's all kinds of ways that we can cut off the flow of emotional information up into the cortex uh, and the, into the cortical regions uh, and where it becomes conscious. But there is no mechanism apparently in existence that can stop that emotional brain from producing changes in the body. There is our gateway, no matter where we are, whether it's due to some um, some unwholesome or um, pathological mechanism that keeps us from being aware of our emotions or whether it's as a result of training ourselves in various ways so that uh, that for one reason or another we don't consciously experience our emotions we can still get at them through the body and that's something you know in the teacher training classes where i had a lot of people do psychology therapy things like that i say you guys have a lot to contribute to the future of development of meditational techniques by incorporating that into it now we look at the energy thing too and it for me scientific background energy well that's a word that lay people apply to things that they don't understand and that in one way or another some way remind them of uh, um, electricity or heat or some other something that is more generically known as an energetic phenomenon but it's something that's very real and it's very important and i treated it in tmi from the point of view of 
sort of the traditional, hey, it's something that happens, but, you know, this energy eventually finds, uh, finds pathways and it becomes utilizable and beneficial and so on and so forth. But, you know, I don't suggest going any further with that. But then you look at Kriya Yoga and Kundalini Yoga and Qigong and Tai Chi and uh, working with the inner winds and the uh, channels and the drops. And uh, I could go on and on, a pranayama practices, so on and so forth. Inner, this, this energy is something that is very important and very powerful that can be worked with. Now, in terms of somebody I think you're referring primarily to somebody on fourth path, which by nature of fourth path, uh, our relationship with our emotions has changed. They don't seize hold of us, but more they arise, and we have some degree of choice to what degree uh, we're going to uh, let them overcome us or not, or the degree to which they overcome us and take hold of us. Um, but that also makes it super easy to disregard emotions and even more super easy to say, gee, I'm, I'm not supposed to be responding to these emotions, so let me just turn the volume down on them so that, you know. Um, and the recognition is that, hey, people get to fourth path and they've got lots of unresolved stuff. They've got lots of parts of their mind system that are driving aspects of their behavior, driving aspects of their cognition that are not consistent with the Dharma, to use your language, but I think that's a very good way to put it, that are not consistent with the Dharma, but yet are invisible or potentially invisible. And both much more highly developed body awareness and learning to appreciate and use energy systems. Like I've done a few sessions recently with somebody who does exactly that, sort of puts me in a place of feeling energy movements in my body and then looking for places where there are uh, uh, sensations that are uh, unpleasant or uh, stronger or constricted or where there's a feeling of contraction or things like that and um, working with them in a way that it uncovers and reveals things and um, although in TMI I talk about when these energies become available that they create all this turbulence of stages or of uh, grades one through four pity in grade five PT, that energy has established channels for itself to move through. And that's actually exactly what the whole Kundalini system is about, right? It's not only raising the Kundalini, the important thing, and, and this was, if you remember Gopi Krishna's book, the problem with raising the Kundalini before you have, have trained the energy to flow through the appropriate channels is that you release all this energy and it's trying to go through channels that can't accommodate it, you know. So it's a real phenomenon. And so the other thing that I've encouraged people in my teacher training class, I see them as the ones who are taking my work and they're going to carry it to the next level. So all of those people who have a strong background in, in energy-related uh, work, like... Uh, um, there, there's an Aikido master 
in one of my classes. Uh, there are people that have uh, done a lot of work in, in Qigong. There's people who've done uh, a lot of yoga, including uh, various kinds of energy yogas and things like that. And I say, hey, I want you to figure out what's the most productive, beneficial way to incorporate these things uh, into the training. You and I started this conversation here in the context of fourth path. But what if we were using these methods much earlier? What if we weren't just trying to overcome the tendency to disregard things at fourth path, but we're using these things in the, when we're still in the place where there's a lot of emotional bypassing taking place. And a lot of suppression of memories that are uh, actually the underlying uh, core of these emotional patterns that we have. What if we bring them in earlier so that you arrive at fourth path with a whole lot more of that work already done? Would that not be great? <laughs> yes, this, um, that's actually where this question really comes from is, um, to what extent should that be a priority? Like, because you can realize fourth path without doing a lot of that work. There. <laughs> so exactly, yes. So and then so like for one who knows the practice well enough that they see a direct path mm -hmm. to fourth path. But then there's this other dimension of working with a lot of that mm -hmm. um, purifications on the emotional, energetic level. Mm -hmm. To what extent should that be pri like a priority if one's overall intention is to really be of most benefit to um, all sentient beings? And because um, it seems that you're still you know there's a lot of risk mm -hmm. on the lower paths of being under the influence of craving and yes. being off track and um i guess the concern is like not to delay like it seems like you're delaying intentionally delaying yes well um yeah that's the thing where's the balance so it is a priority to deal with those things. If you make it too much of a priority, then uh, you're delaying all of the benefits that come from the higher path. Where do we strike the balance? Especially at this stage we are where we fully realize the power of the Buddhist meditation technology, but we see that it's missing these other things. And we don't know exactly how best to incorporate them. So it can be much more time consuming. So we are, you or, or anybody that recognizes the value of this is going to have to say, okay, am I going to put all the time necessary into mastering a particular uh, yogic or our... Um, in uh, the more Taoist uh, energy system uh, 
and delay the progress that uh, the Buddhist method offers. Where do you draw the line there? It's difficult. Now, I suggest you, every person is going to have to, who recognizes this, will need to make their own decision. But what I hope will happen is, especially when some of these people already have some expertise and experience in these things, like you and I, I might have to go and start right from the scratch and take a lot of time learning these things. But uh, to the degree that you can contribute and those who already have some background in this, when they come to Buddhist practice, will be able to contribute much more strongly to the kind of integration where it doesn't create a delay. It's not slowing it down. If anything, it's actually, this is, this is my theory. Of course, I can't go back and go through this. And I wish I could. Um, give me another 50 or 70 years. Man. But um, <laughs> please, <laughs> there's so much I could do. Anyway, but uh, yeah, I, I, my, my theory is that if this were integrated fully, that the result would probably be a more rapid progress. I think maybe that's what Tantra originally was trying to do. That's what Vajrayana was originally trying to do. But I think it kind of got seriously off track when it became the expression of theocracy. Uh, <laughs> came a little bit too deeply embedded in worldliness. Um, but I, uh, and, and I think that's why uh, Tantra tries to make the claim that it's, it's, it's a faster but more difficult route. I think that with the proper development of this, it can become not only faster, but uh, uh, actually not more difficult and not more dangerous. So that's my, that's my hopes. That's, uh, that's the aspirations for what I would see is an expansion beyond the usual confines of, uh, of traditional Buddhist working primarily with the mind exclusively to work much more with the embodied mind, the emotional body, and the energy body. Uh, and I, I, I think were we to make that step, we might, we might have more people popping up on the higher paths all over the place. Like, like when you're a popcorn popper, it gets to just the right temperature and all the same. And I guess the second, like half of my question, it was really, in essence, it's, um, basically, so the shadow issue and then that's not being addressed because of these deep emotional, uh, energetic parts of the minds that aren't being purified. Um, but when they do arise, they must be coming with, like, they come with an intention. And mm -hmm. if that intention is, um, would lead to a, an action that would be deviating from the, the Dhamma, just mm -hmm. by that acknowledgement of the quality of the intention, is that basically just what's happening when you're engaging in these practices, um, probably? Or well, is it something more cause and effect, maybe, that you're just... Well, the shadow is an expression of 
intentions that are arising from a less awakened place and are therefore less wholesome in nature, um, most definitely. You mentioned something about being able to predict the consequences of, of your actions better. And um, there's a yes and no to it. I think you, you are never, there's always going to be unintended consequences. You're never going to develop the kind of omniscience that uh, people would love to believe that, that I, I, I don't believe that that's possible. I, 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 you know, there's too many other things that, that mitigate that against that even being a, a reasonable hypothesis. But on the other hand, um, as you, if, if you allow yourself to live more and more in the moment, what you're going to become blind to is longer term consequences. And so you may have no idea of what kind of consequences could come from your actions. Um, just simply because you're you're living in the present, and that's and I've come to recognize that as an immature aspect of stage four, where you move back and forth between, as I was talking about earlier, the ultimate uh, uh, the ultimate reality and relative reality, and you tend to spend too much time in ultimate reality and when you're in relative reality you don't go to the trouble of creating the long-term large-scale narratives that are necessary to more accurately predict consequences of your actions that's an immature stage i've come to recognize and that there is a stage beyond that where there is a true integration of this that after all the relative reality is ultimately real too, okay? Or as the Yogacharans say, there's the, there's the illusory nature, but then there's the apparent nature, which is ultimately real. And of course, the ultimate nature, which is ultimately real. And since they're both ultimately real, the apparent nature, uh, a more mature perspective, which would keep this sort of living in the present. And I mean, it's, it's really what a lot of the references of returning to the world or returning to the marketplace are about. So, you know, there's the withdrawal, uh, but then there's the return. And the return is extremely important to bring about that integration. Does, that, I hope that, yeah. Well, yeah, would that be, I mean, having that more mature view of seeing the, um, the suchness in that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that, in, in seeing the quality of intentions and long terms and yeah um, is that how does that relate to it seems like it addresses this a similar issue of um uh the emotional uh perspective on things um like does it yeah. is that just another do they integrate with each other or is it like well, well that's true you know i mean it's it, it's it's so easy to just see the narrative as being 
empty and seeing it as a manifestation of causes and conditions and seeing it as just the unfolding of, of suchness and things like that. And then, uh, but, the, but the thing is that in every moment, we have the, you know, we have the option to choose to make certain choices rather than others. I mean, this whole thing would be pointless otherwise. Um, we have that option. So to exercise that, that option, we can't just ride the, um, just ride the wave uh, passively. We have to recognize that we are active participants in the dance of the unfolding of suchness, and we've got to get in step with that. And the only way we can do that is to see that although these narratives might be empty and they might be, uh, they might be entirely causally determined, nevertheless, they are the basis by which we're going to make the kind of choices that we need to make. And that's, I think that's the essential answer to your question there. Yes, thank you. So let's see, I don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to miss anybody here. We've already dealt with Kay, but we got Tom. Tom, we're, we're going to look at your question now. Thank you for your patience. I, I'm sure you were probably sitting there thinking, is he going to just keep going on and never get to my question? <laughs> okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. All right. All right. Let's have a look. Um, I was wondering about getting from one kind of jhana, like piti jhana, to luminous jhanas. Problem is that I'm feeling at ease with piti jhana, at least the four material ones, but can't get into the luminous one. Anytime I reach access concentration, I naturally feel the joy, therefore do not work anymore on the nimitta but focus on joy and rapture. Then I get into uh, piti jhana, uh, go through pleasant state with a very quiet mind and without much physical sensation. But I wonder if I should go on chasing the nimitta in order to access the luminous jhanas. Can you, you're using the term piti jhana, and uh, I just would like to uh, ask you to just uh, double check with you that I'm interpreting what you mean by that. Uh, would that be what I'm referring to as the pleasure jhanas, uh, what Ayakima and uh, uh, Lee Brasington teach? Yeah, exactly. Okay. That, that, that's the one, actually. Well, yeah. uh, I, to be, um, I mean, to tell, sorry if my English is not too good, it's not my native language. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I've been in many retreats, like, uh, you know, the SN Gwenka retreat. And uh, we um, kind of develop some uh, body scan and we get what they call the free flow. And it seems seems to be a sort of jhana, like pleasure jhana. And I, I, I came across to work on, on real pleasure jhana. And then I, I realized that I could get... I could get this free flow much much quicker, much easier than than just just going on body scan and, and waiting to this this state to to arrive, which is more like a, a dry way of, of of going in it, and 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 then it becomes really easy to get to to those jhana and and state that I already know, but in in another way. But I, I try to 
to do the luminous one, which seems to be much harder. But the problem is, is I always get kind of caught by the by the um, pressure Jana, you know, because it's just when you start to feel this this, this joy coming and, and this this pressure, this pity, it's 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 very difficult to, to resist. I mean you say, well let's go, let's go for it, you know. And and so that that's kind of blocking the way of developing this as a luminous jana. So I thought maybe I just go in those uh, pleasure jana and then later on I, I just try to to, to, to catch, to reach this uh, luminous jana. I, I don't really know actually. Well, let's see if we can't, uh, uh, if we can't give you some ways to work with that. Just a, a quick question and then I'll get to uh, more of the crux of what I want to talk about. Do you have some experience of the, of the uh, luminous phenomena arise? Do you sometimes have light uh, arise, spontaneous light arise in your visual field of closed eyes? Yeah, I, I, as I said, when, when I reach the axis concentration, I, I, um, I try to get this luminous um, uh, nimitta, what they call, and yeah, I start to, to have some kind of light. Sometimes it can be some sparkle, like, like stars and things like this. But the thing is, when I get this state, that means that I'm really, I'm really focused. And, and then uh, as the, the pressure comes right on, you know, so it's just like... Okay. So that, I, that's what the main thing I wanted to know is, is you are experience that thing, experiencing yeah. luminosity. The that's it. Now what's happening is when the pleasure comes on, um, you, you are experiencing a strong desire to, oh yeah, that's, let the, and you just let it take you over. But it is a jhana. And as a jhana, the blinders come in, right? And yep. so you're going to experience pleasure and, and you're not going, you're not, you're going to lose potential access to the luminous jhana, right? Okay. Because you've gone from access to pleasure jhanas into the pleasure jhanas. You let the blinders come down. Yep. Now that's the point that you want to change things. You don't want to resist the pleasure, just resist the temptation to let the blinders come down and just just bask in that joy and and then allow it to move to to the more sublime happiness and so forth. So the way you successfully resist it is you let that be there in awareness. But you see, as I mentioned earlier, it's those blinders coming down that are creating a unification of your mind, but it's a limiting unification. It's unifying your mind by limiting, by cutting out other parts of your mind system. So instead, with your attention, you want to practice sustaining a stable attention while the pleasure is in your awareness, while whatever luminous phenomena that arise are in your awareness. And as you unify your mind, like do what you really practice the way that is described for bringing about the the pacific the uh, pacification of the senses, where you just allow the things that arise to be there, but you keep you keep 
following the breath sensations or you do other practices that involve um, highly uh, that involve the use of your concentration doesn't necessarily have to be fixed concentration. It could be momentary or fi fixed uh, stable attention. It could be momentary uh, samadhi as well. But the emphasis is on using that samadhi in such a way that the mind becomes more and more unified around sustaining that and sustaining the awareness of, of everything else. If you do that, this should give you the opportunity for that luminous phenomenon to become more pronounced rather than something else taking its place. Does, does this give you something you can work with? So when you get to the what would be access to the pleasure jhanas, don't let the jhana blinders come down at that point. Continue to practice, uh, and there's a variety, but you can, you can choose whatever specific practices you use. There's a whole collection of them in the first half of uh, stage eight that are, are essentially, they're going to be bringing about more unification of mind. They're going to bring, you probably experience more of the undeveloped PT. By going into the jhana, you experience that nice stage five PT. By staying with concentration and increasing the unification of your mind, you're probably going to experience more of the stage two, three, four PT, uh, where the more unpleasant uh, or disturbing versions of it, the twitches and the jerks and the straight and the weird sensations and all of that. But that's, it's as you move through that, the mind becomes more unified, then the luminous phenomena is going to become stronger. And you want to let that develop in awareness until you reach the point where you can take it as an object of attention, where you're really in access this whole period, but you're in access, but you're you're not allowing uh, you're not allowing jhana to arise. You're just continuing to practice, and then when the luminous phenomena becomes strong enough, you see if it will persist when you take it as the object of your attention. And if it doesn't at first, then you just go back until it becomes strong enough that you can. Then you'll be able to enter the luminous jhanas. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure I get it right. Uh, you mean that when I reach the excess concentration, the idea is not to get too much inside um, the pleasure one, just just keep going, focusing, but not, not, not to, uh, because not doing the shift with the, um, the pleasure yeah. feeling, because that, that's what puts you inside the, the jhana very strongly, but more like keep, keeping focus on the, on the access concentration. Okay, so that at this stage that you, you better just keep focused. You don't, don't, don't let you distracted by, by, by this feeling of pleasure and all that. That's what you mean. Yes, that's right. And okay. treat it as a distraction. Like when all you're right. doing the pleasure, John, is it's not a distraction, it's your goal. But when you're trying to do something else, yep. then it's a distraction. It's a very wonderful distraction. You let it be there in awareness, but you don't let it be. You don't let it become a distraction. You just let it be there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's 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 what I thought in, in the first place, but uh, it's exactly what I didn't want to hear because that means that <laughs> I, I should oh, I shouldn't go yeah. further with the pleasure one because you know the um, the. Um, the feeling of 
getting there is, is, is so strong that you, you, you usually say, okay, let's go. But I, I, I was quite sure that it's, it's not a good idea to, it just, it's, it's to stay focused on the, on the, on the luminous, on the Nimita and all that is, is what I have to do if I want. I mean, I, I have to choose whether I choose the, the pressure one or the luminous one, but I have to choose at this point, not, not, not yeah. crossing this point of, uh, of, of, um, of Jana. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. Yeah, you've got it. You've got it. But uh, I just want to want you to be aware that you, you can't really chase that, that Nimitta. You've got to let it become strong enough that you can turn your attention to it and it doesn't run away. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I know that. I mean, it, you chase it, but you, you mustn't show that you chase it. <laughs> in this, chase it only in the sense of having a strong intent that that's what you're after this time, not the pleasure, not anything else. All right, no. fine. Okay, so I keep going this way. Thanks a lot. I see that uh, Bill has uh, posted something, and I, I think it's relevant to what we're talking about with uh, in, in the chat. If you have your chat open, you can see Bill's, uh, what he's put in there. Relevant to what uh, Nathan and what uh, Nathan was talking about, but also some of the other things we've talked about uh, this today. Uh, he says another approach may be to use the work of Byron Katie to discover what might drive our behavior and learning how to free one's attachment to beliefs that limit our actions. Complex analytic medit analytical meditation, that's, that's an application of this. I love Byron Katie's work. She calls it the work. But it is basically, it's asking yourself the question, what is my story? What is the story that I'm living by here that's creating the problem? What is my story? What if that were different? And that, that is, uh, that's such a powerful method. I, I uh, you know, I, 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 I love it. It works really, really well. And you can most definitely do that using the techniques of analytical meditation that are described in the uh, in the appendix, in the second appendix, where you just, that's the particular question you start with, is you have, you have some context, some contextual issue, and you say, you ask yourself the question, what is my story? And you just, you just sort of turn this around in your mind until you catch a thread by which you can see what the story is and see how it might be different. So I highly recommend Byron Katie's work uh, and it's something to be used that way. Great suggestion, Bill, thanks. So, well, I think we actually answered all the questions of the people that are here today. The only question we didn't, I, I believe there was one question we didn't answer, which was, um, Ollie's question because he wasn't here and I'll, I'll take care of that in the catch-up Q&A later on or if Ollie happens to show up tomorrow we'll do it then. So thanks. I had, I had fun. I hope you enjoyed it and it was valuable to you. Thank you. Uh, until next time. Thank uh, you Kula Daza. Chula Daza. Thank mm -hmm. you all. Uh, thank you. Thank you all. Hey. Right.